Welcome to Campfire Convos in the Play Connection on the Clubhouse Audio platform. Campfire Convos is a weekly discussion led by Jonathan Pampel, one of Mastermind Adventures Professional Dungeon Masters. Mastermind Adventures is a team of creative professionals dedicated to conquering isolation and loneliness by building community through play. This is an informal conversation with folks who facilitate, design, or play tabletop role-playing games. Join us live every Wednesday. First of all, hi, John. I'm a professional GM with Mastermind Adventures. So welcome everybody to our campfire convo about designing games for kids. Of course, you guys know why you're here, but this is for the benefit of everybody else. So this room is like a cornucopia of expertise married to creativity, and I'm super excited to be here with all of you. Uh, before we begin, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, when you do so, feel free to tell us about your projects, past and present, and how how awesome they are, because that's why you're here. I'll go first. I'm Kristen Kalina. I'm the founder of Mastermind Adventures. I get to manage all kinds of amazing dungeon masters, and we are currently um, working on a program that has previously been a live action role play program uh, that we are bringing online, and that's Eagles Claw American School of Magic. And we're using Strixhaven, a curriculum of chaos, which is the new D and D setting that was just released last year. Um, as hey, there's Allie. Um, as uh, <laughs> as a basis for the D and D games that we'll be running through the program. So that is me. Sen, do you want to go next? Sure. Uh, my name is Sen Fung Lim. You can just call me Sen. I use he/him pronouns, and I am a game designer from London, Ontario, Canada. Um, so I work primarily in board games and card games, and then also have done a ton of work in RPGs. Um, I guess in RPGs, I'm probably most known for uh, Jiangshi, Blood in the Banquet Hall, which I wrote with uh, Banana Chan. And then in terms of this very specific um, conversation that we're having today, I'm currently doing work with Ninth Level on uh, a project that we're that is aimed specifically at kids and social emotional learning. Uh, for my day job, I'm a pediatric therapist and a psychology professor at a local college, and yeah, that's me. And I'll pass the mic to Roger. Hello, everyone. My name is Roger Dupuy. I am a teacher by day, a language English language teacher at the local university. And at night, I'm a mad scientist. Uh, I I try to uh, finalize, craft, finish up. Uh, some gaming projects, uh, a generic type uh, RPG that I've worked on for a while, and uh, it is in closed place testing right now. Uh, and it's uh, really flexible enough, maybe the kids could uh, glom onto it. Um, and yeah, that's it. Um, happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, who wants to go next? Evan? Allie? I can go. I wasn't sure if Jason was on or not. So <clears throat> um, my name is Evan Colbert. I'm a therapist and I'm the clinical consultant for Mastermind's therapeutic wing of Quest, which is a, <clears throat> a social skills uh, tabletop role playing game. And I'll pass the mic to Allie. Thanks, Evan. Um, I am 
Ali Salentic. I uh, am the Master of Lore for Mastermind Adventures. Um, so I do a lot of the uh, story writing for a lot of our events, um, including the upcoming Eagle's Claw event. Um, I also help the design quest uh, that Evan talks a little bit about. It's a therapeutic role-playing game for uh, kids that's supposed to be easy to play and help teach uh, some social skills that might be a little more uh, difficult for some kids to kind of learn. Um, I love role-playing games and board games and all kinds of stuff like that. So I'm very happy to be here. So uh, I have a very broad question to start start us off here. Okay, so we've all designed for adults and for kids. How is it different to design for kids? Are they looking for something a little bit different uh, than you find in your adult audiences? Or is it more... Um, like is is the content a little bit different or is the, your approach a little bit different well i i'll i'll start us off if that's all right um one of the things that i think is is very different than uh doing for um adults and teens you know you kind of have to differentiate i think between you know, high school age and middle school and elementary school age. Um, but when you're, when you're playing with kids, when you're, you know, working with kids or thinking about designs for, for games for kids, they don't care about any of the stuff that the adults care about. They just want to have an engaging story and have a lot of fun. So they don't care about the mechanics of the game other than how, how it gives them a good time. They don't care about the rules. They don't care about the points. They, I mean, by far and large, for the most part, they just want to have fun. And I think that that's kind of a, um, one of the reasons why I love playing with kids is because you can kind of disregard this rule if it doesn't make sense for what the the group is giving you or kind of flex on this specific, you know, game uh, dynamic or game mechanic. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. I just, oh, yeah. Roger, you want to? Oh, sure, in? sir. I was just clapping really hard and almost broke my glass here. Uh, the the idea of differentiating by age is so huge. But elementary school, right? They they even split that in half too. You got the little ones. I I I, I run into like uh, pre K K kindergarten kids who like to play, and then their brain is way different than like a couple years later. So you're right, Evan. I totally am with you. That's so cool. So as far as like the age differences go, um, I mean, what they what they need and what they want, like, you know, superhero material is ubiquitous in our in our culture today. Right. When do kids start turning toward power fantasies uh, like in an age group like it's it, you can either like do a power fantasy or do they want like a sense of wonder or a puzzle to solve? Like, what do you find is uh, where do you find that that switch flipping whenever they they start growing up? I'm sure Evan and uh, uh, Sen probably have a lot. I'll just do it from a linguistics background, like Piaget and all that stuff, where right? they talk about how kids develop a, a uh, like a a brain that has uh, abstract concepts. Uh, uh, sometime, uh, I don't know uh, exact ages because it's it's not an exact age, 
But you'll notice that, I mean, the same things that Evan described about how not caring about rules, not caring about like mechanics and, and, and timetables or, or things like that. I mean, when you tell a kid and you say, hey, we're going, we, we, do you like Disneyland? And they said, yes, we're probably going to go again next year. Oh, that's great. Tomorrow? I mean, they, and they ask the next day, are we going to Disneyland? Because time is not one of those things that's in their heads as well. As well. So, I mean, it's really, it's a different game when you're, when you're creating a game that has, I mean, is it as, uh, is it like shoots and ladders, right? So is it something where you just uh, roll? It's all real. It's all real time. There's no, there's no future in it. There's no, and that's, that's good for little kids. Um, I, I want to ask Evan, you know, when you're dealing with social helping kids with social learning, uh, how do you, uh, how much of that is, how do you do that in a game? How do you inform and give roadmaps to kids who lack those kinds of social roadmaps uh, to, to, you know, interact in the right ways and also to interact with the game the right way, you know, with the rules and such. I, I'm, I'm curious because I'm, yeah, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, um, it's a really good question, and I think one of the things that we do in with Quest is <clears throat> we have a culture that's established right away. So we do a lot of orienting the kids to the dynamics of the games. We have something called um, like a, it's a, a like rules of being a hero, right? And they they're we all agree to cooperate. We agree that we're gonna you know not. Uh, point fingers and and blame each other. We agree that we're not going to um, no man left behind kind of right. There, the, there are these uh, these orientations that are really important for kids when they're coming into the game so that they know what to expect. And then as we work through uh, the storyline, Quest has a lot of non like we don't uh, incentivize combat. Right. So we aren't we aren't the kids aren't earning big rewards for defeating monsters. They're earning more uh, incentives by um, cooperating with uh, or, um, you know, solving solving puzzles through either cooperation with their group members or cooperation with the NPCs. And those are those are things that we incentivize through, you know, uh, things called like friendship tokens, where you can give a boost to somebody's role or, you know, a magical item that benefits the entire group. <clears throat> um, as far as like, you know, the differentiation with, with age, I really, I think that like the, the, the power situation where you've got kids who are kind of wanting to take control and, 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 uh, um, exert their power over, you know, uh, like an NPC or a, you know, some kind of a beast or whatever they, they meet along the storyline. Um, you get a lot more of that when you get up into high school. I mean, Roger's right. There is no defined timeline. Every, every kid comes with a different brain. Every brain is different. Right. And so, you know, brains develop at different speeds and different rates. And so really, <clears throat> I think if, if I'm trying, if I'm, if I have to differentiate, uh, I would say that, you know, in high school is when that starts happening. And again, with the culture, if you, if you establish a culture of, uh, oh, what is Ab Ali, Ali, you call them murder hobos? Is that right? Yes, murder hobos. <laughs> yes, if you like establish a culture that like incentivizes murder hobos to just go and like run rampant, then what you're going to find is there's lots of power that you're that you're you're dealing with, and you can even find that in the younger kids groups. Um, 
you know, like I said, it just, I really do think it depends on the culture that the, that the, that the DM sets up at the beginning and kind of the expectations. So that's my thoughts. So you're saying, Evan, that Quest, um, your Quest uh, approach, it, it builds in mechanically uh, incentivizing uh, problem solving, um, puzzle solving, obstacle overcoming, and not necessarily monster bashing or monster killing and things like that. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, we've had some of our, our DMs have had some really amazing stories about, you know, kids befriending, um, you know, some some random encounter with like a wolf or a spider and the kids like, I'm going to befriend it. And then, you know, <laughs> DMs like, oh, that wasn't part of the that wasn't part of the quest. And I don't know. OK, it's your friend now. And now you have a companion for the rest of the of the of the trip. So those those are some of the things that we do to kind of incentivize the cooperation and things like that. And then we also have mechanics. Like I said, the um, the friendship tokens and uh, different items that kids can find along the way, or purchase from vendors or whatever that um, that allow them to you know cooperate in game. I was just going to add that um, I mean basic incentivization of behavior when you're when you're setting up a game to reward certain things that's the behavior you're going to get right is basically what evan's alluding to and if you set up a system such that it is not combat centric that it is not uh you know centered around that type of behavior and that it is centered around other behaviors like listening or cooperation or helping and then you give things like the reward tokens for that or experience for that then the stories that people will tell as long as they gravitate towards that type of system right and if you set up the culture at the beginning like this is the type of game we're playing um and then the people who opt into that that they know what they're in for uh even when they're kids they know that that's what they're in for now may they take it another direction sure because it's a role-playing game um and they may end up with power fantasy kind of ideas within even a system like that. But when they don't get rewarded for it, that's what we call in psychology, that's that would be extinction of a behavior, right? So we'd be looking at, yeah, you can do that, but you're not getting anything for it. So you can do it if you want, but that's not really where the reward lies um, as opposed to like totally punishing them for something. So I, I think that, you know, a well-crafted game for anybody, any age can really, do that by proper properly looking at the incentivization uh, of whatever behavior it is that you're looking for what's the experience that you want the players to have and then you incentivize them to do the behaviors that create that experience it's sort of this you know self-fulfilling prophecy in a way um so yeah there, there's a lot of design psychology that goes into trying to avoid certain types of stories and trying to make other certain types of stories happen. But like with everything, um, you know, in a, in a game system that is essentially a free range storytelling, uh, it's up to the GM to kind of guide the students, the kids towards a certain type of thing. But they can go off rails every now and then. And that's, that's okay, right? Like the, the whole idea of like, that wolf is now our companion. Another kid might have, tried to chase that away. Another kid might have tried to kill it. There, there's all sorts of ways that story could go. Um, but if the GM can kind of corral them towards certain 
ways by pointing out the incentivization structures while still allowing the player to have agency within their character. And I think that's, that's it can be okay. It just depends on how far you let that go, I guess. Oh, so in in your experience during your games, right, how well do kids deal with chance and randomization? Like, are they big fans of luck or do they like having more control? I've actually never thought of that. That's a great question. Um, I've never really played with kids that cared about the control and the mitigation of luck the way that adults tend to. Um, and it might be because they don't mathematically understand the number of facts that go along with, you know, odds and ratios and, you know, what a plus one actually means on a D20 or whatever. Um, but I think, like Evan brought up right at the beginning, the kids that I've played with are just interested in a really cool, fun story and being a part of that and being something, being part of the spectacle of the story and remembering the story and retelling the story the next session with their friends before they play. Uh, wasn't it awesome when? Um, and so anything that creates awesomeness is great. And sometimes randomness creates awesome stories. Uh, I find that depending on the play style of adults even, uh, you know, a lot of people who play more powered by the apocalypse type systems, they're more okay with failure uh, because failure is actually semi-incentivized in the way that you get experience only when you fail. So, you know, again, that, that idea of what do you reward, what behaviors are rewarding, what stories are you rewarding through your systems, that is, that's a key design point in terms of, you know, randomness. Is it really random or is it just this uncertainty engine that we're, we're, we're playing with here? And any outcome is okay as long as it drives towards a better story. Uh, I think the problem is when we look at some systems like a zero-sum game where where you have hit points and you die, right? That, that's a bad story, potentially a bad story, right? Unless you have a way to teach the players that, oh, you know, a noble death is okay, or a death in combat when you're fighting for the, you know, the good of the people, that's okay. Whatever the framing of that is, that's also, I guess, equally important in terms of getting somebody to be okay with random output and uh, without mitigation. But then, you know, once you get kids who understand math a little bit better, then you start getting that min-maxing of, well, I'm taking this skill plus this skill. Not because I want them, but because it gives me that plus two in ranged combat. And uh, that's, that's awesome because ranged weapons are cool. So, and that's okay too, right? If that's the type of, of game that the, that person, that player wants to play. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's no real need to be that kind of... Uh, anti-player GM where you're, you're trying to aim for the TPK. Um, I prefer GMing with the style of, I am my player's biggest fan and I want to see them do awesome things and tell awesome stories and just watch in wonder as they do things against the obstacles that are thrown against them. So, you know, I, I think incentivizing that type of storytelling and that type of behavior is really important. And you have to have systems that allow for that. Like uh, one of the, my favorite things in just, vanilla fifth edition is just things like inspiration points right so i think those are really powerful ways to get people to play in specific ways that are you know 
pretty broad in general, but just like explain your combat, describe what you're doing. And, you know, you could say, oh, I hack at somebody with my sword, or you could talk about how you did this kind of flip and a kick and you, you know, if you're that acrobatic character, then you can describe things really well. That's, that's cool. Get an inspiration point for that. And then when other players see that model, so kids really do, in a lot of ways, learn from other kids their age. And they see, if they see a kid tell a story and get a reward for telling a really cool story, they're going to want to tell a really cool story too. Um, and so again, incentivizing the behavior that you want to see is a way to get away from some of the things you don't want to see, just don't reward it. That's kind of how I look at it. I 100% agree with that. Um, it's so important to uh, incentivize that kind of behavior that you want to see in your game because um, like like you said, Sen, um, kids really do learn by modeling and uh, it's it's a, it's an important part, I think, of being a GM, especially to younger kids or, or kids that have more rigid thinking. Um, I find that the younger a kid is, the more affected by a perceived failure they are. Um, uh, a lot of times when I see like, so for example, um, when we... Uh, the first version of Quest that we used used uh, a lot of fate, uh, the fate system mechanics. So we used uh, fate dice. Um, and with those, you can get like from between a plus four to a minus four. And in some cases in fate, it's not bad to get a minus score because you could, if, if the difficulty is, you know, minus three, then getting a minus two still means you succeed effectively. Um, and a lot of times I would it would be very difficult for me to try to explain to some of the really rigid kids that we played with that it's okay that you rolled a negative one. Like as soon as they rolled the dice and added them up and saw that they got a negative number, whatever number that was, they would immediately start, you know, in, in on themselves for failing. And I'd, it would be very hard for me to kind of get them out of that thinking that a, a negative is negative and a positive is the only way to succeed. Um, so we ended up switching that mechanic to make everything a positive because it was a lot easier to understand that. Um, for I think everyone jams and players included. Um, but that kind of, uh, I think when you're specifically designing games for kids, but also playing games with kids, that trying to be upfront about that um, kind of the failing forward kind of thing, like even if you're, even if you, you know, fail to pick this lock, you can still get the door open. It's just maybe you were really loud and you notified a guard and now there's a guard coming. So now there's another challenge for you. Um, I think that's really important with, um, particularly with, with kids that are rigid or kids that are um, really focused on like success versus failure as a black and white thing, trying to get them more into that more flexible, you know, it's okay to not do so well on something because it might make something else better uh, is I think a really important part of it. Um, yeah. I mean, I play with a bunch of kids who uh, some of them are, are on the spectrum and getting them to sometimes engage with the story was really difficult until I kind of took my hands off and said, you know, like, I'm not going to try to tell you what to do now. Like, I'm not going to limit your things. If you want to have a bag of infinite cats that you can throw at people for damage, sure, you can have that um, because it made the game more fun for them. And then they were more engaged and then they were more willing to go along with the story, um, which again, every kid wants a cool story, but some kids just want to be that really unique character that, uh, is totally different from everyone else, but still wants to follow that story. And you can have both of those things. You can have really story-focused people and really character-focused people in the same group. Ali, I thought that was awesome how you described the, the, the quick switch in mechanics 
and that's all it took some number switching the mechanics never changed just that the, the nomenclature but, but i think you hit on a really important thing for rigid kids because i work with those uh, cool kiddos as well and they um you know part of our i guess on our job or our, our role is to help them cope with reality cope with the world slowly and and in good bite-sized amounts and so I, that's why I love RPG stuff because it, it allows us to simulate a story, simulate an adventure, simulate something, some kind of um, a quest or endeavor. And then uh, there is failure in it, but hey, you remember how you failed there? I mean, that was a failure, but look now, um, see how we've learned from that and now we don't do that. And then how we do this. And then, so it's sort of like, again, in a soft way, uh, very, very simulated way, helping kiddos overcome this, this notion of failure because failure is, is in front of them as adults, you know, they'll be facing it as a real, as real adults. And we, we don't want to, we don't want this, the mechanics to coddle the kids too much, but at the same time, you know, as you know, if you're dealing with kids uh, with this kind of, you know, uh, this kind of orientation, this rigid orientation, they're going to, um, going to, uh, you know, react that way. And that's just to help them overcome that. So I love what you, how you did that, Ali, just by switching out mechanics to make that smoother. At the same time, we have to think about uh, how do we help the kiddos with failure? And, and part of the, uh, the uh, as you said, the, the, the idea of that failure was a failure, but it'll, you know, you still get something out of it. There's some, some, some kind of benefit out of it. It's a kind of a cool thing. And I know Fate Accelerated does, uh, you know, it, it succeed with a twist things like that. So um, there are systems that can maybe model that a little bit. But at, at, at the same time, sometimes the kids just fail. We have to help them with that as well. And hopefully, the, if the environment, the gaming environment is positive and they, they trust the, the, the game master person, um, that they are able to even power through that as well. Uh, so that, that's my comment there. Yeah, I 100% I agree. Um, it's I love that. So I, I think it was Sen that mentioned this. I'm, I may have gotten a little bit lost for a bit, but um, the idea of having like a system that has skill, like when you fail a skill, you get points towards increasing it is also, I think, a really important and and good mechanic um, when deal, when when running games for kids, because they're um, at least it gives them something for their failure. Right. Try, you know, you want you want a system that that incentivize trying. I mean, uh, we, we didn't, uh, you know, Pokemon, why is Pokemon so successful? I mean, it's basically a bunch of kids taking care of animal, you know, managing their pets and their pets fight each other um, and they faint, they don't die. Right. So it, there's a lot of kid friendly things in there, but uh, to incent to, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I lost my thought. <laughs> That's a kid. <laughs> I actually, so I have a, I have a good, like, um, I guess a little anecdote um, about kind of, it's kind of the opposite of what we were talking about in the sense that they succeed, the kids succeeded in their quest, but they feel like they failed. Um, and it was really good for the story because it really carried like this kind of, um, it, it's carried through the entire game. Um, so I've been playing with these kids for a couple of years now and um, they're all teenagers. They all know each other very well. So it's a very good, like close group. They all really work well together. And um, they were fighting like they, they knew that they had to go confront this dragon that lived on top of a mountain. Um, and they were convinced that this dragon was evil. It was a white dragon and um, that like there were all of these problems. But once they saw her, uh, they realized that the dragon was like kind of caught in this like rage. Like she was she was in inconsolable, like nothing. They couldn't really do anything to like 
calm this rage in her. And they tried, they tried talking to her. They tried offering her um, like an item and uh, everything they did, they, they were unconsciously kind of doing the, the wrong thing every time. So like they presented her with a, with a idol from this goddess that they knew that she was associated with, but it turned out that that goddess had trapped her on this mountain. And so she was angry and she broke the statue and they were like, Oh my gosh, like we have to do something. We have to, what are we going to do? And then she attacked them. And they had this whole, this, this fight lasted three sessions. It was a three-part boss fight. They ended up in the bottom of a volcano fighting this dragon who had ice and fire powers. And in the end, they, they killed her. And when she died, she like kind of the madness, you know, was free from her eyes. And she was like, thank you. Like you freed me. And she died and her spirit, like, you know, dissipated into the world. And they were inconsolable for a good few sessions because they were like, we, we had to kill her, but we didn't want to kill her. Like we wanted to befriend her. We wanted to help her. And like, that was all we could do. Like we've, we've, we're terrible people. And I had to keep telling them like, no, it's okay. Like, you know, this is, this is fine. Sometimes like success can feel like a failure and sometimes it's okay, but like, it's fine. And now they are, they're absolute. I cannot put dragons against them because they're absolutely like they're like we are never fighting a dragon again. We are always going to try to talk to them and try to work them down from this. Like even if they're attacking us, we're going to stand there and we're going to take it because like we're going to prove that we don't have to use violence to solve these problems. And I was so proud of them. Um, the the next dragon that they fought, they married and it was very cute uh, and wonderful and I loved it. And I think that's also something that uh, a lot of people discount um, kids and particularly teens for as being too immature for like these kind of more. Um, deeply emotional moments of trying really hard to do something the right way and and failing the first time but using those those failures to succeed in other ways that even I couldn't predict and I think that's just a wonderful aspect of playing for kids they're so so creative and I love that about it that was awesome Ellie that's a great story I think Ellie it's a really it's really good to remember that kids can do hard they and and if we can take the time to normalize that it is hard then kids can totally do hard um i think it's when they feel like it's not normal and they're wrong or they're bad in the the hard that makes that kind of turns it in a really unhelpful direction but if we can normalize it for them then it can be a really powerful thing. Yes, Evan, that was beautiful. 100%. They, kids and teens are so much more capable of a lot of really difficult things than I think a lot of people give them credit for. And I mean, I think it's our job as both game masters and game designers to kind of try to pull that out of them and see how they, how they approach some of these problems that are kind of models for real world things. So, uh, Roger, you mentioned using bite-sized bits of uh, of the world to not present too much at one time for some of your audience, some of your uh, some of the kids that you're you're trying to reach through your games. Uh, a lot of popular children's media likes to build upon like a a modern setting and add fantastical elements to it. Do you find kids ready to engage with material that deviates wildly from reality? Or um, do they like to take the time to learn about settings in general? Or is it like a play now, read later sort of thing? 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I was I was distracted. I was training my wizard or my little wizard dragon over here. Sorry. Oh no, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think that um, the idea is that um, I, I was struggling because we've been throwing teens and kids and rigid, and these are all valid terms. But I've been trying to like classify uh, the 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 different kinds of games we need or approaches. And I was thinking like pre mechanics, kids, mechanics emergent, and then like mechanic mechanics like adults like like typical i guess typical but in in terms of the 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 fantastical or the imaginative thing i have a i have a setting called um uh, uh what is it called gosh high school is weird that's what it is it's called high school is weird and then it's basically your high school your you know it's like sounds like eagle's claw it sounds it sounds like uh you know uh the whole high school kids with magic powers. Um, and I think uh, there is in junior high and in getting into high school, kids feel so like no power. They feel so like bad about themselves generally. This is all for, of course, very general. Um, you know, they, they struggle with uh, their identities. They struggle with their looks. They struggle with their intelligence. They struggle with their friends. They struggle with their family, their friends, everything. Their pants don't fit. Their shoes are weird. Uh, the sky is blue. And and then so um, I think giving them that that fantastical escape a little bit element is actually you know in in a way in a place where it's it's monitored and and healthily you know put together by you know folks like Evan and Ali and Kristen I I, it's not, it's an, I love this because you guys are my heroes I really do um, applaud what you guys are trying to do and that we're trying to create environments uh, that are like safe places refuges and they are fantastical and that's okay for a while right i mean we don't want to we don't want the kid to go to school and cosplay every day um you know as as one of their characters in in one of ali's games maybe that's not cool uh at that school and we need to help kids you know but at the same time i think we i mean i i need it and i'm gonna i'm a full-grown adult and I and I need to kind of you know get away and 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 do something fantastical for a little bit you know either the game design or, or reading or writing or drawing, and so yeah I think it's uh, I think everybody here agrees that that this is why we're in this a little bit right this this whole love of of the thing that is extra weird extra different, I mean in Pokemon again it's just Pokemon ten year old kids they get to train these super cool guys and by the way where are the dads in that game right. Where are the dads? All the dads in Pokemon are, are like, my son pointed that out. He goes, you know what? There must've been a war where all the dads died and that's why there are no dads. There's just moms cooking in the kitchen and, and, and gym trainers and then bullies. I mean, it's, it's like, it sounds like Japan. Sorry, but it's mm. Japan. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, I agree that there are, uh, it, it's, it's so beneficial for kids to be able to have this kind of an outlet where, um, where they get to escape and be, uh, be something else for a while in, in a supportive and, and enriching environment. Um, you know, we, we worked on uh, programs for uh, residential homes um, that were live action uh, role playing um, programs, and they, they were incredibly, incredibly uh, Oh, I think we I, lost you for a moment there. 
I think she wanted to say incredibly, incredibly good and effective, but I'm just going to guess. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely. We, we worked on those together. They were, they were incredible. Um, the, just the, so another little anecdote, um, these, uh, these, these kids at this residential home, we built them like a, a dungeon to walk through, like a live action dungeon. And they, uh, they were uh, talking to this guy, this, the, the dungeon that they were in was this like kind of introspective world. They went into the head of like one of the bad guys in the world to try to like uh, see what was uh, like, see what his problem was and see if they could help him like by, you know, like guiding him towards a better solution than the one that he had. And they were talking to this, uh, this guy, his anger, basically, who would not calm down. He was pacing back and forth. He was yelling and he was like, angry he didn't attack them but he was just a very very angry person and they all as a group uh kind of discussed it for a little bit and then they were like okay why don't we all just sit on the ground and let's uh let's take some deep breaths and let's try to like what's what is bot why are you so angry like let's get to the bottom of this and it was very quiet and very good and they basically talked this angry person down and got him to explain what was wrong. And then they were like, we're going to fix this for you. And I was uh, standing next to um, like their, their like residential uh, therapist, the person in kind of in charge of uh, like their side of the program. And he was like, I'm so angry at them right now. And I was like, how can you be angry at them? Look at how awesome they're doing. He's like, oh no, like I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm so proud of them, but I'm angry because every time I try to take get them to do these techniques to calm themselves down they pretend they don't know what they are and look this proves that they know what to do he's like now i know that i can be a little bit more proactive about it and tell them like hey remember when you did this thing now let's try to do it for yourself if you were inside your own head how would you calm yourself down and i was just like that's so amazing that they they are just naturally using these techniques that they've been taught and that it's um it's it's they're learning how to do it through pretending how to do it um, Evan has a great like thing about that, where if you learn, uh, if you pretend to do something, you're actually learning how to do it. And it's great. I'm going to let him talk about that. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm such a brain science nerd, but especially children, because they are, the, they are in the process of learning through interactive play, but also adults. We, our brain doesn't have a, the ability to tell the difference between what we pretend to accomplish and what we actually accomplish. So skills that we pretend to gain, we, our brain doesn't have a way to tell that we are pretending. So the skill actually is developed. So when you've got kids who are pretending to be a warrior who is confident and who is gaining some sort of, you know, kind of, uh, self-confidence and, and, and leadership skills and all of that, uh, kind of stuff, they're actually doing that. They're learning it. So those kids come away with actual developed knowledge. The brain doesn't have a way to tell the difference. Evan, I love that because it's like the you you got the the old school visualize yourself as the really super cool person, the really effective person. But it's not visualization only. That's very weak. It's that's not enough. It's practicing the skills in this simulation that, are, like you said, gets them to that point where they become effective in the real world. Yeah, and it's sorry. I was I was just gonna say it's super sneaky too because if you tell a kid, "Hey, we're gonna build skills and confidence and all of this kind of stuff," the kid is already checked out of that conversation. This is super sneaky. They don't even know that they're doing it. Yes, yes, yes. It's hilarious. I call my therapy stealth therapy because 
I do play therapy stuff, so nobody ever believes that it's really therapy. You mean you play games all day long with your patients? Yes, I do. That's what I do. Um, but uh, yeah, so a lot of what you're talking about is like self-efficacy and development of self-efficacy through through actually doing the thing. But even in pretend, like, so I was just going to anecdotally mention that, you know, I have, I have friends who work with like Keanu Reeves, as like they write comics with Keanu. And Keanu has all these weird skills because he did it when he was acting in like John Wick or something like that. He actually learned how to do all these things, even though he's just pretending. So it's it's very true, no matter who you are and what you're learning all the way from a kid to like an actor, when you do it through play, you actually get those skills in some way, right? So that's, that's a really, really powerful tool um, and a selling feature of why game-based learning is incredible, really, when you think about it in terms of engagement and whatnot. Um, and I love the story that you told, Ali, because it really does highlight that, uh, you know, people can demonstrate skills when they're not the ones in crisis uh, to help other people in crisis um, that they may not be able to do and actualize when they're actually in crisis themselves. That's, that's kind of harder in a lot of ways therapeutically, but um, that is a good thing for self-efficacy to say, now that you've done it, or I saw, I saw you do it, you did a great job. Um, do you think you could do that for yourself, right? I think those are really good sort of, um, you know, observations for the Jiminy Cricket type people outside of that one child to say, hey, you did it before, you can do it again. How do I know? Because I saw you do it. I saw you succeed at that. And that's where like the success in role playing and playing games just breeds that confidence that, uh, you know, children can take out into the real world. Jonathan asked a question before all of this about, um, you know, fantastical worlds versus, you know, normie worlds with a little bit of, of spice on them. And, you know, I think for kids, um, in terms of learning new things, it depends on what you want to do. Do you want them to learn all this lore or do you want them to play a game? Uh, and it also depends on how much lore they need to know to play the game. A lot of times, uh, having a lot of background knowledge about the story, if that helps with immersion, if that helps them learn the rules, if that helps them play, then something that is typical with a little bit of extra spice here and there might be actually a better thing to do than to make something that's totally weird and out there and you have to learn all these new rules about how the world works. Um, and I find, you know, a lot of what makes things like, you know, children wizard or child superheroes work really well is that the world works as it works and you're the one that gets to break the rules and you're the special one that gets to do neat things in them. So that's kind of why I do like setting things in regular old space, place, and time, and then just add a little tweak. And the players are the ones that are able to, you know, maybe exploit that tweak a little bit better. Anyways, that was just to answer Jonathan's original question. Yeah, to, you know, to uh, going back to Jonathan's original question, I do think that, um, it's it kind of seemed like one of the one of the components of the question and correct me if i'm wrong jonathan is helping the kids to transition from the fantastical world back kind of into um 
into their typical world? Is that part of the question? Like, how do you, like, do kids get kind of too stuck in their, in the wild fantasy that they have a hard time transitioning? Well, I'm wondering how easy it is to transition kids into your fantasy world you're creating in your game. Like, uh, what parts of reality do you use as scaffolding? You know, there's, you have to take shortcuts somewhere or else you're going to be there all day explaining to the kids and not playing anything. Um, like, what are they most or least willing to part with whenever it comes to uh, making something fantastical? I, th I think there's a lot to be said for the idea of the magic circle that kind of surrounds the gaming table. And again, this kind of goes back to part of your orientation, right? If you orient the kids to this idea that when they step into the room, they are, you know, entering and whatever kind of uh, environment you're trying to create for them, it gives them a, a place to a, a really kind of almost defined line of transition so that they can come in and be really ready for whatever magical experience you might be ready to have with them. And then when they walk out, they leave their character behind um, and, and they're, you know, kind of back to the regular world. Yeah. We actually have a process to do that in some games where um, we have like a statement that you recite at the end of the game where it's like, my name is whatever my name is. I played this character. Um, you know, I'm leaving that character behind but taking my memories of something cool that I did today in the game with me or whatever that is. So having that kind of active leaving of the character in the magic circle, uh, I think can be helpful depending on what type of game it is and really how deep the game is. And we're going to talk about bleed and, and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I uh, was actually going to just say that I have consistently um, in our experience have been very, very, very surprised um, by how little difficulty that kids experience uh, when introduced to these um, these role play scenarios. Um, I think maybe because they have grown up with more games than we all did, um, that they tend to very quickly uh, adopt this idea. I mean, uh, we you know we had our big live action programs. Um, and then we did little kind of bite-sized ones that we took to schools, community centers, um, libraries all across uh, New England. And we would hand a kid a roll sheet and say like, okay, you're, this is, you know, we obviously give them a choice, but then we give them kind of just a, a quick, like very mini roll sheet that would have like some basic, you know, ideas of, of things that they could do that were special for themselves um, because of the the type of character that they, um, that they that they were playing, and never ever did a kid uh, get confused or not understand the concept of of what their job was. And they were simple to Sen's point. They were kind of simple characters. You know, you get to do these special, you know, these two or three special things um, because you are the wizard type or or barbarian type or whatever. Um, but kids adapted to it so quickly; it made my head spin. Um, do you, you remember, Ali? <laughs> oh yeah, like the there, and and sometimes we'd bring these uh, these events to like uh, kids in like community centers that did not like want to come. They didn't sign up for this. Their school or their community center, or their library was like, "Hey, we're doing this thing now. Yeah. You guys are all coming to it." And some of these kids were like, "We'd bring like a like a wizarding school um, event," and these kids would be like, "Magic isn't real." it's not real and it's, this is dumb and you guys are all babies for believing in it. And within half an hour, we'd have them 
casting sp- or, like spells of people and using wands and like convincing them that like they have that magic inside of them all along and it's kind of corny to say that but um but like these kids at the end would all of their doubt was gone they'd be like nope I am a wizard and I can do this stuff. And like, I can, uh, this is so cool. Like, I can't wait for you guys to come back. It's so amazing. Just how, like, even with, even with people who don't want to buy into it, they still see what's happening around them and they still want to kind of become a part of it. Um, And kids are really, that's one of the greatest things about, especially younger kids. They just, you tell them like, Hey, you're a fairy. And they're like, great. I have magical fire powers. And my name is like Fiery the Fire Fairy. And let's go talk to that bear. They are just into it. Um, and the, their ability to just do that is amazing. Allie, can I ask you how old those kids were? Um, so usually we work with um, kids who are between like uh, like 10 and, and 16. But on the younger side, we had kids as young as like four and five uh, joining us for like particular LARPs. Um, my profile picture is a picture of me from one of those LARPs where I play a rainbow witch. Um, and she would, it was called fairy tales. And we would do these little LARPs where we'd go on adventures together and walk around the, uh, this, like the, the, the YMCA actually the, um, like their big field, their soccer field and have adventures. And, uh, the younger the kids were, the more they wanted to like kind of buy into it and just be a part of it. Uh, it, it's awesome so normal so typical of kids isn't it it really is and uh, i mean that's what i love i love about it um kind of but and then on the older side we did have kids up through their teens you know i mean some of, yeah, our, yeah, yeah. Some of our events uh were you know did skew older and uh yes. and it really didn't seem to make too too much of a difference no it didn't um i mean we'd have our our eagles claw event was uh, you could start coming at 10 and then it kind of, you kind of phased out around 17, uh, 18. Um, and then you'd become a prefect and be an NPC with us. And then they could like be a part of the story and actually like kind of be behind the scenes, which also a lot of the teens that we worked with love doing that. Um, actually to, to kind of talk to that whole, like, how do you get kids to um, engage or um, what, what's the, like, how, how do you kind of make this between reality and everything? Um, the, uh, one of the things that I do when I'm jamming for, particularly with kids is I kind of let them help me create the world that we're going to play in. Um, I don't come pre-prepared with like a lot of stuff about the world. I I'll, I'll give them like, Hey, like, like my, my current campaign is you guys are from a floating Island and whirlpools have opened up to the world below that haven't been open for millennia. This is like, this is the, the country, like, tell me something about like, you want to play a half elf. What are half elves like in this world? What do they deal with? What are their average, like, what, what's their thing? And how are you different from that? Oh, you want to play a dwarf? Like, let's talk about dwarves. Guys, what do you think dwarf does? Dwarves do. Like, how do they, they live in a floating continent. How do they deal with that? Um, and the, the session zero is a lot of us discussing as a group what we think would be fun to play with. And then, uh, then that's what we play in. And it really, they sometimes correct me on some of the lore because they remember when they started that this is like, this is what you said in the beginning. And like, I remember this because my character is like very typical of this kind of thing. And they'll, uh, that really does help engage them in the world if they have a hand in creating it, which isn't always possible, but, uh, I, that's my favorite way to do it with, uh, with kids as young as like six. 
Yeah, hard agree. I love co-creating worlds with people. It it just makes it so much more vibrant to them and they fill in the blanks in their own heads better and they remember it better. So yeah, I, I think uh, a co-created world and even passing on like narrative authority to the players during the game makes them kind of realize that it's they're not just passive. They're quite active in this all. They're not just a, a player. They are part of the game's you know life uh, and I, I really do appreciate having games that allow us to do that or just even allowing people to do that in a game where it's not typically allowed i, I think there's a lot to be said about co-creation uh and shared narratology so so sen you hit a really strong chord in my heart about creation or co-creation and also um i want to know does how do you guys manage in your game systems that you use, how do you, is there a mechanics, uh, is there a mechanic for that? Do you have, now this is for like rules, emergent kids and adults who, you know, they can handle some rules. Now, how would you, how do you guys, is there a mechanic that you guys, like, you know, nuts and bolts mechanics that, that are in the game to help with this co-creation other than creating a setting, like actions or, or, or things to do to overcome obstacles. Do you guys have, uh, is there, are there mechanics-based ways to do that? I'm curious. That's an interesting question because I've never actually thought about it from a mechanics-based standpoint. We do have, you know, rule, like not rules, but just like directions on how to make new moves or how to make new items and things like that. That exists. Uh, See, because so that, I guess, yeah. could be a, sort of what you're talking about. Sure, because what I find is when I, and that and what you're doing what, what is happening the co-creation thing is brilliant it's that sometimes i find that certain kids who are very social or have better speech ability um less less inhibitive they're the ones that are doing all this kind of stuff in the in the actual gameplay and then the kids that are a little bit more tentative um more 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 in, you know turned inward uh less less confident or whatever it may be uh that they are not co-creating they're just sort of going along with it and so is there a way that a mechanic can sort of scaffold these more inhibited um kiddos to to create oh i want to create a rule like, like yeah said, I, I want to create a scheme right that's the so thing that i there's definitely ways to do that and, and it, most of it's just like being a really active gm and understanding spotlighting and how um you know you need to ensure that those more reticent kids have that opportunity to speak up if they want to. So there's definitely kids out there who are like happy to just be along for the ride and happy to be a participant and an observer. And some of them, I've had little kids play a lot of that and they end up being like the most astute observer or they have the best memory because they were just listening to the story and they were there for it, but they might not have done a lot of the co-creation part. Um, another thing you can do mechanically is, you know, assign specific questions to the specific character classes or specific playbooks or specific players if, if you don't have all that kind of other rigmarole or, or trappings in your game. Uh, so, for example, if you're playing with, you know, basic D&D classes, the fighter character, you might ask them specific questions about, you know, who is the mightiest warrior in the land and, you know, what is the beast that everybody has been trying to slay but nobody has and 
the magic user might be what is the item that is the most coveted by all of the uh, guild magicians across this entire world and you know you just ask characters to talk about stuff that their character would be interested in and don't let the other people talk about that so one of the things that is very mechanically apparent in games that are uh, from certain types of uh, lineages so for example powered by the apocalypse games they are really good at what we call niche protection mechanically and niche protection means that there is one character and only one character that can do these types of things and no player can choose the same playbook as another player otherwise we're going to have too much overlap and somebody isn't going to feel special and spectacular or be able to shine when their character could shine because multiple people can do that thing and so you'll see in games like that there are definitely shared moves that everybody can do but they're pretty basic and then when you look at your playbook moves that only you can do those are the special things they don't always come up when they do your character really shines so um in order to get that kind of stuff you have to be willing to really make what characters can do what and what characters can't do another thing and one of the not it's not a problem with D&D but it's the basic premise of D&D the original type rules without milestones and things that you know we get xp by killing monsters who can kill monsters everybody what happens how do we kill monsters well slightly differently if you're a magic user than uh than a non-magic user but other than that we can all kill monsters and so Nobody feels quite as special in that if they're if you know that's not the thing that they want to do a but also because everybody can do that. So um, I think mechanically niche protection has led to some of the best storytelling experiences that I've had as a, a GM uh, because you set characters up to where only they are the one that can save the day because they're the only character who can do that thing, and you know that because you know their playbook, you know what they've chosen. And you lead the stories into these great moments where they're put to the test. They can do it or not, uh, but they're the only one. Other people might be able to solve the problems in different ways, but really it's like spotlighting that character at that time. Um, and if every character can draw a sword and slay a monster, then that character isn't going to feel special. But if you have special moves or special spells or special abilities that only those characters have, then lean into that and that's not necessarily mechanical unless it is like with, with playbooks and things like that but sometimes it's just good gming uh and listening to your characters your players and what they want to accomplish what they want to do which is something you set out in your session zeros right uh and maybe even uh like next week is my reset week with my group where we haven't played for a little while because of our schedules it's like hey next week you know what let's just reset and see what everybody wants to do. Are we are we meeting everybody's needs? What's happening here? And again, that's just you know being a, a good GM uh, part of it. So mechanically, yes, you can do that. Uh, I think niche selection, is a, niche protection, sorry, is a good way to do that. But then also through GMing techniques of like spotlighting and listening and accepting that some players don't want to engage in that, and that's okay too. Thank you. That was that was good. Niche protection. Yeah, in, in session zeros, you know, creation of characters and things, that's where that conversation is going to really be relevant. So that's really good. 
So yeah, I find that Dungeons and Dragons 5e has really spread their characters out so that they can, every party can pretty much do everything. It's just a different sort of flavor to it. And niche protection is a good term for like wanting to feel special in a game. Normally, like to do that in Dungeons and Dragons, you've got to have cooperation between the players to like, I need to be wildly different than this guy. And this guy needs, can be wildly different from me. Like if you, and it's it's harder and harder as more and more uh, content is tacked onto the universe. So I I like the idea of focusing more on that. But right now it's it's all done with the players and the GM. It's not done in the rules. So again, the challenges for little kiddos is that uh, you know pre mechanics kiddos is like I want to be the the doggy with that can change color. I want to be the doggy that changes color, and I want to be the doggy that changes his color, right? So you have a party of three doggies that ch that change color, and they're the rainbow puppy team, and you know. But again, you can roll with it. I think that's okay. Um, it's a totally different dynamic. That's why it's really important, you know, as we go forward. We really that the the GM has to be super agile in being able to manage uh, all these age and expectation levels and different kinds of buy-in i love the i have a question about buy-in for everybody um uh i love the stories where oh this is going to be a session where we're going to learn the skill um you know being mindful of your emotions like like emotions are okay like that's our skill today and everyone's like oh, okay whatever but if you you know again create a stealth therapy as sen was talking about doing stealth therapy and you, you put that in the game then they buy into it and they go all in and they learn and then the whole practice your brain practicing and all that and there's the effectiveness that's happening and the and the skills being learned so then uh you know kids can smell some kids can really smell when something is quote unquote therapeutic right so how do you guys i mean you've t you've touched on it here and there all the way through but does anybody have any comment on you know how do you get rid of the smell right how do you get rid of the the, the smell and get them to buy in and i guess you can do it for pre-emergent emergent um whatever um if you could tell me like ages of the kids that'd be awesome too i have all these questions it's mostly like whenever like it mostly it's about telling a good story first right and it, the theme of the story can be something along the lines of controlling our emotions or uh acknowledging our anger and then dealing with it right but it still has to retain that human element that this this is a story arc that we're going through together um like uh, you can always tell when you're being preached to but if the story has these things in it, you know, you pick it up along the way because you're practicing it as you go, as as Evan was talking about. I think that one of the things that we do um, in almost all of our, well, in all of our quest storylines is this idea, this kind of overarching idea that nobody is the villain in their own life story. So even the villains. And our DMs, I think, have a really interesting way of weaving in the humanity of pretty much every villain that the kids come up against. And it's, it, you know, it creates that engaging story and it doesn't feel false because, again, like I said, kids can do hard. Kids understand hard. And they also can understand, even at pretty early ages, how 
people can go from being well-intentioned to doing (laughs) some really horrible things. Um, And I think that that's a way of maybe doing what you're talking about, Roger, which is kind of getting rid of the the smell of a therapeutic uh, model, right? Yeah, thank you. That's good. Um, story is, oh, there's almost like a sanctity to the idea of a story, right? When you, when you couch everything in a story, the kids just, they want to, they want to, they, they want to follow the, the story or they want to have the story progress. They want to see some sort of, um, outcome and they want to be participators in that story. At least the six and eight year olds, uh, pre-emergent, like pre-emergent kids that I have been working with, uh, uh recently. And, so I, I think story again is magical. It's weird how if you, you get that story down and you get them buying into the story, then, then they're going to try their best to try to solve that. And then all those, all those practices, all those simulations can happen dealing with this and that and, and having those conversations with this person, that character, that NPC, and then going forward. And so I really see that as being really, uh, the story being super, super powerful. Just wanted to add a couple of tools to your toolkit there, Roger, if you if you have the inclination to do so. Um, one of the most powerful things that I do as a teacher when I'm, I'm a college professor but uh, is inquiry-based stuff, right? So asking, not, ask, not me asking them questions, but having your players start off the game with a question, like, what, have, what, like, what am I going to find out about myself today? Or you know, what is it like when X, Y, and Z happen? So having them start off with a question can be a really powerful way for them to then find the answer to that question. You might have a bunch of questions listed out that they pick one of. You might have them, you know, give them a little scenario and say, what are you, what do you think is going to happen next? Right? Those types of questions that you can ask or they can ask themselves really lead them in the direction of learning about that subject or that issue. Um, and so instead of laying it out, like you said at the beginning, you say, then it is not great. Don't, don't do this. It's like, don't say, okay, this is a session in which we're going to learn about, you know, social emotional learning and the value of sharing, you know, that's, that's not a good, that's not a good way to lead into something that kids aren't, kids are going to get disengaged with that. Right. But if you start with a question, like you laid a scenario, like, how would you feel if, and now let's play the game that is about those feelings and that type of situation, right? Uh, they don't have to answer it then. They should find the answer through play, right? So that's one tool is starting with inquiry. And then the other tool is ending with a debrief, right? So the thing about um, that, I, that I dislike about gamification of learning, um, and I'm like an ardent anti-gamification person in a lot of ways, even being a game designer, like, you know, my school, my college, like you're a game designer, why don't you like gamification? Because it doesn't do the right things. It's incentivizing different behaviors than what you actually want, which is, you know, you want learning, but you're giving points for people attending. That's a little bit different than what you actually want. Um, and they, they're not, you know, psychologists. So they don't really understand all of that, but I try to get them to. Anyway, um, learning doesn't happen necessarily actually in the doing of things all of the time. A lot of times you do learn by doing, obviously, but you cement it by reflecting upon it at the end of after you've done it. Like, so what did you learn today? Right. So um, having a bunch of maybe pointed questions at the end of a scenario that was supposed to teach about something that you're now ending it with the learning message. You know how GI Joe 
cartoons always ended with that little, you know, and knowing is half the battle thing. It's the same idea. Like, add, like entertain them first, ask the question first, get them to play through it first, and then ask them, so what did you learn? Did you answer that question that you started the game with? You can even write the question down and have them answer it at the end. This is what you asked yourself at the beginning. Did you find an answer? And you might say, oh, that's really fascinating. It's really interesting that you found that out. Um, so start with questions and with a debrief. Those are ways that I usually get a lot of more learning focus into the game if it is supposed to have a learning outcome. Not all games need a learning outcome. That's another thing. Uh, but if it does, because you know that's what your job is or therapeutically that's what you're supposed to be providing, then you should really build in a debrief at the end of every session um, or at least at end of every arc of whatever your arc is so that you can get that kind of thing across that what did you learn from the play sessions how can you exemplify that learning through what you did in the game? Um, and then you can you know, make really good notes about that because that's what all therapists do is we write copious amounts of notes. So everybody, Sen basically did a clinic on good, excellent pedagogy, right? You start with a question, you start with some kind of pre-vis, pre pre-thinking of what's going on, and then you do the conclusionary debrief. That's so awesome, Sen. I, 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 I want to try to remember that we can borrow from so many other areas and just drop them in. So thank you, Sen, for being super articulate with that. No yeah. problem. It's funny because yeah. like, people ask me, like, okay, what's your favorite role-playing game design podcast? Or what's your favorite game design podcast? And I don't listen to almost any of them anymore. I listen to like other stuff that influences and in informs how I play and design. And a lot of it does come from, you know, education, uh, technology, ed tech, um, psychology, behavioral psychology, cognitive psych, um, you know, all that kind of stuff is really important to me professionally, but it influences how I make games more than game design itself does. Uh, because uh, I think they're broader principles that can be boiled down. Whereas if you're learning from the very small realm of game design, it's like this game design tool solves this problem. Yes, but what actually is that problem if we look at it in a bigger light? So, uh, you know, I think when you, when you say, you know, you're bringing all this stuff in, yes, exactly. Bring all that stuff into games, into game design. I think you'll have a, a richer conversation in the end. Yeah, I always, I have this fear of becoming uh, derivative and listening to finished products like, uh, you know, game design podcast, stuff like that. Like I, I find the tools useful, but I always find myself having to work backwards to see like where they got these ideas and how they put them together as opposed to taking that tool and using it for something like a problem that I need solving. But Jonathan, man, that's a great mental exercise, deconstructing that. That's actually really helpful, I think. Doesn't it help you? Doesn't it help a little bit? No, it, doing that process? it does. I, I like I like hearing what people have to say, but when I I find myself incorporating things from finished products that I don't actually realize I'm doing. Like uh I I try not to I try not to take anybody's ideas to take a shortcut to solve a problem I have in a game I'm trying to to get going. It's more that why did they feel the need to create this and now can I work can I work from my basic building blocks I already have and come up with something uh, that does the same thing? Now, now that I know that how they've done it, I feel like there's some bleed there that I like, since I have this fear of becoming derivative, I don't necessarily want to take that finished product and move on with. Jonathan, you remind me so much what you just said about uh, Austin Cleon steal like an artist little booklet thing. 
don't know if you're familiar with that, but he talks about this concept of Im imitation versus emulation. And the, I, the difference is you're worried about derivative and that's imitation. And then emulation, is, his, his term, the way he defines it, is stealing the spirit of what, how the problem was solved. So in basketball, say, um, you know, um, Kobe Bryant um, didn't, couldn't do a sky hook as good as, um, as uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is 18 feet tall and, you know, has these long 20 foot arms and can do that. And um, Kobe, you can't do that physically. So he had to steal the spirit of that, that move and did the baby sky hook and was just as effective and, and satisfied and, and was able to solve his problem by emulating Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but not necessarily, um, you know, imitating it because he couldn't. Physically, he was different. It's the same as like, uh, why does, <laughs> I'm sorry, music, Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix, why does he sound so, why does his music sound so cool? Part of the reason, well, he's super creative and all that, but part of the reason is his guitar is upside down. He plays a guitar, he plays a right-handed guitar, but he's left-handed, so he plays it as a left-handed guitar player. So all the attack points of the, of the strings are all backwards. And that's what brings that novelty. And people can't play like Jimi Hendrix unless they flip the guitar around. But what that's the thing. Jimi Hendrix wanted to play like everybody else and uh, or he wanted to play well and, and he imitated, but his his own limitations being left-handed actually made his stuff unique and, and not sound derivative and sound really cool. Sorry, two different sports and music, which is not part of this topic. No, that that was incredibly informative, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Just laughing at myself. So, I've got another one here. So, how important do you guys find capital P presentation for kids when you're doing these uh, tabletop RPG sessions or any of the games that you run in person with folks? Like, how many senses do you find that you need to engage to really get them into it? And what's your favorite way of doing this? I'll jump in. I, I use them all. Uh, I, I love to draw. I, I love, you know, music. Um, I, I use, uh, you know, physical activity. So it's not LARPing, but I mean, I try to get them to do something physical. And actually dice rolling is physical too. So it's kind of like stealing that notion of VARC, uh, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, you know, reading, things like that. And um, trying to engage all those senses because kids are, kids are very, very, they're, they're all all over the map in terms of how they engage with information. And so I want to engage every touch point by using all the, the, the things. So um, it doesn't have to be a cool video. It can be, but that's one part that's visual and auditory. But there's other really cool things. And paper and pen, I mean, it really is powerful. It can really be good. Just got to, you know, draw stuff down. And it doesn't need to be perfect. Kids don't really care if it's perfectly perfect. They, they get it. See, at least that's the way I've had the experience go my way. Uh, when I run games, I I used I like to always have since I run online in the most for the most part. Um, I like to at least have if there's going to be a no battle, saves. I like there to be a, a grid map for them to be able to know, like to visually see what's happening. Um, uh, that, I that subscribe to a lot of Patreons game. that are uh, map based or um, token based, so I like to have uh, tokens. Uh, to represent certain uh, creatures and characters that they might be meeting. 
Um, I am very lucky to have a group of teens who are extremely creative. Um, at least three of them uh, love to draw and they illustrate scenes and characters from the campaign all the time without me even asking them to. Um, and one of those uh, artists is also a kind of a prodigy in music as well. He plays like six instruments and uh, he is, uh, he wants to write music for these games. So I've asked him um, recently actually to write a couple of theme songs uh, and what he's come up with is just brilliant. But um, I like, so I like to have, uh, I like to have at least visual representations. It's always cool when I'm switching to a new map in Roll20 and they're all like, oh, this is such a cool map. Look at all the stuff here. Um, or when I like reveal that I have like a hundred goblin tokens that are just running at them, they get really excited about that. Um, but sometimes I'll also just have like an area map showing them the place where they are and we'll ju I'll just describe what's happening. Um, they're really great at visualization. Uh, at least th these kids are. And um, this is when I, when I run a game, when I run games in person, I tend to not, I, it's entirely theater of the mind. Um, we rarely use grid maps or tokens. Um, we often um, just describe what's happening or, you know, kind of figure out things. We're constantly asking either the GM that is running for us or me, um, you know, okay, where's everyone in the room? And like, what is, ever, what, what is everyone doing? Um, and only when it gets really complex with multiple combatants do we kind of, we have a grid map on the table that we sometimes just use as a generic way to measure. Um, so, I mean, I think it just, it, it depends. If you're the kind of GM who doesn't like to like describe a lot of stuff, um, I think having visual uh, input is really great. Being able to show a picture of something, um, even if it's just a picture of something from Wikipedia that you're like, hey, kind of looks like this. Like, this is what I'm describing to you. Um, it, so I think it's it really depends on the kid, but I, I often find that um, most players respond really well to visual stimulus. Um, the auditory is not quite so important, although there's a couple of voices that I like to do um, that I'm really very good at, but others I can't do at all. Um, yeah, and, and music is always good, having music in the background. Um, I like to do that if I can. Uh, but yeah, a lot of my stuff is theater of the mind, and that really, it works really well for me. Um, not everyone has the time to go searching for specific pawns or uh, maps to perfectly describe their thing or make them. Um, I enjoy making maps a whole lot, which is why I do it. But uh, I mean, even if it's just as simple as sitting across the table with someone and talking and describing something, I think uh, I think that's great. Really, you really only need your voice for a role playing game. Um, but other visuals sometimes do help. So we've been at this for about an hour and a half now, so I think we might be wrapping it up pretty soon. Um, so I'm thinking we're all going to like do our, we're going to take a little bow and go go backstage after all this. So like, hey, if uh, if you want to, you can tell us, tell the room again, like who you are. And if you have any current project, you're, you're welcome to plug that. And uh, then I'll I'll end the room and we'll we'll be done. Maybe we can draw names from a hat. I'll go first. I, I'm uh, Evan Colbert. I'm a licensed therapist and I'm a clinical consultant for um, Mastermind Adventures Therapeutic uh, Game Quest, which is a therapeutic tabletop role playing game. Uh, it looks like we lost Roger anyway. Sen, do you have anything to say before we, we all bow out? Sure. My name is Sen Fung Lim. I use he him pronouns. I am a game designer, writer, developer from 
London, Ontario, Canada, where I have a day job as a pediatric therapist and a psychology professor. Um, I guess the next thing that I'm doing is probably a role-playing game about uh, garage bands, a teenage garage band in high school uh, that plays their last gig and then comes back uh, to their high school reunion maybe 20 years later. And it's called One Night Only. I did that with Banana Chan, and it will be published by um, Exalted Funeral. So there you go. That's coming up soon. Thanks. Dude, that's really cool. <laughs> Garage Band. Is I want to play uh, that like game. right now. Allie, what about you? Okay. Uh, my name is Alice Lentic. Um, I am the Master of Lore for Mastermind Adventures. Um, our, our current upcoming projects, we have a couple. Um, we are doing a, a, the Eagle's Claw American School of Magic uh, all-day event, uh, April 16th, I believe. Um, we've got a couple of cool like um, uh, Twitch promos that are going on uh, for the weeks leading up to that. Um, this Thursday, which is tomorrow, uh, is uh, talking with some of the Eagles, past Eagle's Claw professors about their experiences. We're talking with uh, GMs the week after that. And then the last two weeks, the 7th and the 14th of April, um, I am running my wonderful teen group through a short two-session adventure in Eagle's Claw. Um, all of them have been to Eagle's Claw before. They're very excited, and I cannot wait to uh, show them and everyone else the brand new Eagle's Claw stuff. Um, we're also doing, uh, I'm not sure if we set a total date for it, but we're also doing a more adult-focused uh, magical school adventure um, called uh, the Nine Maze Academy of Thaumaturgical Studies. Uh, which is based on a game that I ran for Kristen and our moms uh, called Magical Girls. Uh, it's a uh, magical school in a mystical land uh, full of adventure and uh, very like more college focused, think like the magicians. Um, really fun. Uh, so if you're interested in that, uh, we hope you join us. That's it for me. And I'm pretty sure Kristen is on a call right now. So she's she's technically not here. So we're going to wrap it up. Like, I really appreciate you guys all coming out and, and talking for a while in this channel. Like, you you guys brought a bunch of expertise and you were able to articulate your positions really, really well. I appreciate you, you taking the time to do so. Oh, and uh, also, Mastermind, the uh, the Discord is up at the top. And uh, we'll just, we'll see you guys next week. If, if you want to come on by, come on by. We do this every Wednesday. Uh, we have a different topic we discuss all the time anyway. Um, anyway, thanks a lot, everybody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut down the room.